and thank you for tuning in. Welcome to a new episode of the Passion for Technology podcast by EBB Electronic. Welcome to the Passion for Technology podcast. The electrification of the transport sector is gaining momentum. According to Electric's power barometer, in 2021, the electric powertrain already represented 18% of new vehicle sales. In this context, better, faster, and more efficient charging processes are crucial to the success of electromobility. But what are the implications for the energy sector? That's exactly what we're talking about today with Bruce Douglas. Bruce is Director of Business Development and Communications at Euroelectric, the association representing the interests of the European electric industry. As such, he speaks for more than 3,500 companies in European power generation, distribution and supply. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Mustafa. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. Bruce, you're the voice of the European electricity industry. Why did you join Euroelectric? What's your mission? Well, the reason I joined Euroelectric is really to be exposed to the whole power sector from both generation, transmission, distribution and end-use consumption. I've spent over 20 years in renewable energy. But what Euroelectric gives me is that access and influence to a wider range of technologies. I mean, my personal mission is to electrify everything that can be electrified with clean and renewable energy. And that's aligned perfectly with Euroelectric's mission which is focused on electrification and decarbonization. You're a proven expert in renewable energy systems. How does that fit with other technologies? Yeah, I mean, you've rightly identified that the energy system in Europe and globally is not built only on renewables. In fact, you know, renewables are coming from a very low base and increasing significantly over the last few years and set to increase further. But of course, within the mix are other technologies both fossil fuel, so gas and coal, but also nuclear. And in fact, they make up quite a significant portion of the current generation technologies. In Europe, 25% of the power currently comes from nuclear, so it's the number one generator, and there's quite a lot of assets still on the system. Many countries also are looking at investing and installing new nuclear power. But it's exactly that interaction and challenge that interests me and how we can you know, facilitate and accelerate the energy transition given from where we are today and where we need to get to. Is the change in energy policy a problem or rather an opportunity for the European energy industry? That's a good question. And I think, you know, as a lobbyist in Brussels, policies are the critical piece of the jigsaw. I mean, we truly believe that they can make the game changer for the energy transition. And currently, we have some very positive elements within the European energy policy. So the recent Repower EU which is aimed at accelerating the transition to a more secure, clean and affordable energy system, including a huge ramp up of renewables, something like 750 gigawatts of additional capacity by 2030. Put that in perspective, that's about 80% of the current generation capacity of Europe, the total generation capacity. So 80% needs to be built with renewables over the next eight years. Hugely ambitious, but, you know, so that, but that's setting a, a clear direction and these long-term targets and the policies that come behind it are critical for investor confidence and to build out the necessary infrastructure. Having said that, the recent and very unfortunate war invasion of Ukraine by Russia has changed everything. So really, the energy crisis now, and I'm talking about energy security and the energy price rises, have really reopened the debate about what we should do in terms of the energy transition. 
And in general, again, the signals are positive. Policies that they're putting in place are the right ones. And I'm talking specifically about moderation, so energy saving, both in gas, but also in power, is, I'd say, the first and most important step that we can take, not just as individuals, but also companies and governments. And secondly, to address the core of the issue, the root cause, which is the gas supply and the gas prices. We're advocating to put a cap on the price of wholesale gas, not just from Russia, but from all imported gas into the EU to try and manage that and protect customers from that. President von der Leyen proposed to cap inframarginal prices, which is actually interference in the electricity market itself, which caps the profits of the power sector generators. All those except for gas and coal, obviously. Now that, you know, has to be seen exactly the details of that. But our fear is that that will create uncertainty with investors. And what we need more than anything at this time is investor confidence. And we're talking about billions of euros of investment required for both renewable build out, but also grid investment to support that. And so anything that shakes that confidence is very unwelcome at this time. So we need to see the details of it and how that could be implemented, but it could really damage the potential for renewable deployment. Electricity and electric innovation manifests for many people in terms of electric cars and everything in and around that topic. And do you drive an electric car yourself? And if so, where and how do you charge it? Yeah, I actually have two electric cars in our family and I've just recently bought an electric bike which is say, even bigger game changer for me for commuting to work. I used to cycle uh, a normal bike, but the electric bike makes it faster and, and slightly less tiring to do it. Joking aside, the electric cars, I mean, I was you know, a first mover many years ago, bought an electric car. And at that time, it was difficult you know, to find chargers and to work it out. I mean, I, I actually now charge 100% at home. I have a home charger. I have a rooftop solar system. So in fact, they're solar-powered cars almost exclusively. I charge during the day when the solar is generating. And I find it extremely user-friendly. I don't have range anxiety. I don't have charge anxiety and would advocate and, and recommend it to anybody to go down that route. Bruce, the automotive industry and the electricity industry have had very little to do with each other up until very recently. But with e-mobility, the two need to talk to each other. How's that working out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a paradigm shift in both transport and energy. You know, before you would be filling your car with oil-based fossil fuels from a completely different supply chain, completely different industry. And now you're filling it generally at home with electricity. So we have to work together. And I'd say we are successfully doing so. One initiative from Euroelectric that we launched a couple of years ago is called eVision. With exactly that aim is to bring the two sectors together, both the mobility sector, that's the car manufacturers, the charging infrastructure, and the power sector, basically to provide business opportunities, but also to smooth what you're saying, that relationship and the pathway and the transition to this new electric paradigm. Speaking of paradigm shifts, what impact will the massive increase in electric vehicles in Europe have on the electricity grid? So, I mean, our estimates, that it will, of course, have an impact. I mean, there will be an increased need for electricity generation. Our estimate is about a, a 10% increase, 10, 11% increase of the generation capacity by 2030. It's not a huge increase, but it is an increase. But we also, in that same study, we just recently released it. You can find that on our website. So in that same study, we also found that the addition of 
e-vehicles, we estimate it will go from about 5 million, as you mentioned, on the roads of EU to about 60 million by 2030. The addition of those will actually be, can be an asset to the electric grid. It needs some investment on the grid side, but if managed well, then those cars can actually help the grid in its operation. Bruce, mobility is only one part of this. I mean, other sectors are also expected to be electrified. In this regard, I'm thinking of, you know, the heating sector in particular. Will electric cars compete with heat pumps in the future? Yeah, it's a great question, especially now. You see, if you look at the increase and deployment of heat pumps just in the last couple of months, because of gas crisis, because of the Russian invasion, you can see the future, you know, where heat pumps become a dominant heating source for residential, but also commercial industrial consumers as well. We don't see an issue with it. We see them as complementary. Yeah? And that increase in electricity generation can be dealt with, with increased renewable deployment, system management, and increased investment in grid infrastructure, both software and hardware. And we also see the complementarity between those demand side elements, so the load in EV charging or the heat pump, with the supply side. As I mentioned, rooftop solar at my house is one simple example of where if managed well, then they can be complementary and in fact work better together than apart. That leads me to another question, Bruce. What will it take to make clean energy available to everyone? I mean, is decentralized energy generation the key here? Absolutely. And that goes for Europe as well as globally. I mean, Europe, as I say, my own personal experience is that, you know, for having decentralized rooftop solar, allows me to get direct access to clean and affordable power. And that goes for any citizen in Europe now. You know, rooftop solar is accessible and affordable to many households. And the new business models are coming into place, which will help the upfront costs. The bigger question, I think, is about the global situation where many millions, hundreds of millions of people do not have access to electricity at all. And I think solar can play a key role in enabling that access to power. Previously, I was the chairman of the Global Solar Council, and one of our missions there was to try and electrify with clean and renewable energy the rural communities of, for example, India, South America, Africa, that necessarily didn't have access to power or clean power. That's a, you know, a, a long and challenging road, but huge steps are being made, and solar and even wind power in decentralized communities can make a huge difference to that. Bruce, fast charging stations will, you know, let's say in the foreseeable future, remain in the minority in terms of the number of charging points deployed. They will, though, place a particular burden on the network with ever higher charging capacities. What should be the response to this? Yeah, I mean, you rightly point out that the public charging is a small part of it. Currently, it's about 90% of all charging is private charging for households or in companies. And public charging will be a small part. But as you say, the fast charging, high power, will be a small but significant part of the amount of electricity being consumed. And the issue with the high power fast charging units is their location, but also the unpredictable nature of their use. So in residential systems, private charging, my house is always overnight or during the day of the weekend. So it's, you know, it's reasonably predictable. On the highways, it's unpredictable when you know, a truck will come or cars will come. So they're starting to now have calculations and forecasts of when the use will come. 
and also plan the location of them around hubs, around charging hubs, so that they are well-placed for the motorway network, so the traffic, but also well-placed for the load near to centers of renewable energy generation or where you know grid connections can be facilitated quite easily. So it's a lot in the planning and the system management. When looking at electric vehicles, you know, you see huge batteries with ever-increasing capacities. Do you think that e-vehicles can also give something back to the energy industry? I mean, in the sense of cars as the new power banks. Yeah, absolutely. Just imagine 100 million batteries, mobile batteries, at quite a significant scale as well. The capacity of those batteries, they're only being used 5% of the time on average. 95% of the time, they're sitting in your drive or at the office, you know, and can be used in an intelligent way to support the grid. Now, that requires a thing called vehicle-to-grid, V2G, yeah, which is not really commercially available yet. There is an additional cost to that, but we believe in the coming years that the cost will be offset by the value proposition that that would enable. So once that's enabled, you can imagine that with a sophisticated energy management system, you could leverage the batteries for use peak loads, uh, peak times when power is required. So instead of turning on a gas turbine or, or going to the market, you could literally pull power from the car batteries. Let's focus a little more on that. I mean, sounds like many moving parts and you touched up on energy management. How important is that? What levels must that be implemented? I mean, energy management is critical to the success of that and the implementation of electrification generally, let me say. It has to be implemented at all levels. So energy supplier, the energy consumer, the charging station, and it requires a smart and integrated approach to that. And I'll give you one example, which is managed charging. So if, for example, at my house, I let a third party manage my charging, and they could then decide when my car charges and to how much, and I can set the limits and I can say, okay, I need it 80% charged by 8 a.m., the third party player, be it a utility supplier or another, could then use my battery in a way to support the grid during that period of charging. They can also pull power from my battery when required, you know, once the V2G is implemented. Another example is a time of use tariff, which would then incentivize the consumer, myself, to charge at certain times, yeah, because either I can save money or even make money, you know, depending on which way the power is flowing. Another example is solar and storage. So if I install a battery at my house, which I've not currently done, I'm looking into that, then I can use the home battery as another piece of that energy system, which if managed correctly, could then enable uh, even more sophisticated power flows. Bruce, as we did a couple of times now, again, looking into the future, would you say that the switch to electromobility, that that is something that can't be stopped anymore? Will that succeed? Or might there be another period where we end up having to backpedal and look for alternatives? What's your take? You can imagine my answer, which is yes, of course, e-mobility will succeed. I mean, we truly believe it's inevitable now. It's not a question of if, it's when, it's how fast. Our job is to try and accelerate that as much as possible. And my personal mission is to accelerate it with clean and renewable power. So not just relying on, you know, carbon sources, but really to have clean power going into that e-mobility, the electrification more generally. I would add that other types of transport are also available. You know, walking, cycling are also critical, especially in cities. 
And there should be, it's not our role necessarily to do this, but there should be significant investment in infrastructure for public transport, walking and cycling as well in order to complement the e-mobility revolution. Bruce, it has become somewhat, you know, tradition in our podcast that towards the end of each individual episode, we ask our guest when and where their respective passion for technology originated from. So how about you? Where does your passion for technology come from? It comes from when I was very young. And technology, I think my dissertation at university was on how technology enabled humans to expand their powers, their senses in a way. So vision, touch, the ability to move. And that really sparked in me an interest in how technology could be used in a positive way to change and improve the world and help citizens really benefit from all technology has to offer. So I'd say that's where it started. But as I said, you know, during my time traveling, windsurfing and kitesurfing, that's where I saw the implementation of wind power and how it could change communities locally. For example, in Brazil, in the Caribbean islands, in Morocco, where that locally produced decentralized clean and affordable power could really stimulate the economy and help save the environment. Super interesting. Well, thank you for the insights that you've shared with us today, Bruce. Dear listeners, you can find more info in our show notes. Also, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast, Passion for Technology, on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other popular podcasting platforms. And you, Bruce, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much, Mustafa. Mustafa.